Um, for some reason, that made me think of uh, what is it called? Saturn return? Is that a thing? Mm-hmm, that is a thing. Is that like in your 29th year? Is that yeah, around that time, your yeah. late 20s? I don't really know fully what it means, but I know it's a lot of like disruption and upheaval in your life to yeah. bring your. It's like you know, transformatory. Yeah, it's amazing. Like how much it's proven to be true in mm-hmm. people that I know. Mm-hmm. Like they've gone through some major transition between 28 and 30. Yep. Um, yep, for sure. Absolutely. I pay it. I'm not an astrologer. Uh-huh. I'm not any kind of scholar when it comes to astrology, but I pay attention. And it amazes me even, you know, I, I know what's going on each day. And, and, um, I can see it often in my, in my, I can feel it in myself and I can see it in my clients. Like sometimes when there's something significant or some, um, something that's said to bring disruption or upheaval or, or whatever drama of some kind, I'm often amazed, like can see it over throughout the day. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. Like astrology is something that before moving to Asheville, I never would have given a second thought. Mm -hmm. Like I was actually pretty actively against it. Yeah. Like when my eyes, when people spoke about it and just in moving down here, being around people who are really guided by it and Mm -hmm. like it really kind of is a guiding principle for their lives. It's made me a lot more open to it. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it's something I follow to a T by any stretch, but um, I can certainly see the parallels and see how it's helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. I think what's helpful for people is just having some framework that makes sense for why things are the way they are, mm-hmm. whether that's religion, totally. astrology, yeah. um, astronomy, like whatever it is. I think mm-hmm. it helps mm-hmm. for people to see things on paper that explain why things are the way they are. Absolutely. I agree. And, you know, astrology is it gets a bad rap, I think, a lot of the time because it's just seen as sort of this woo-woo out there thing. But, you know, it's so much more than just looking at your horoscope of your sun sign in the paper and then guiding your life by that. It's very complicated. And, um, And I don't know, as I'm learning more, it's making a lot of sense to me. And it makes sense to me also in in the sense that I, I just believe that, you know, we are one with all things, with nature. Sure. We are part of nature. And, um, you know, that includes the universe and the celestial bodies. And so we see how the rhythms of the earth affect us. Yep. You know, we can see how we feel our moods are different when the weather is different or whatever kind of happens seasonally. <clears throat> and so it makes sense to me yeah. that we feel that on, a, on that broader scale, too. Definitely. Um. Anyway. Before we get too deep, I totally forgot to unplug that mini fridge and I'm hearing it in the headphones. Could you unplug that, um, the black plug in the wall? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that would have driven me nuts. I don't know if you could hear it. Mm-mm. It was just like a low humming. Yeah, no. But before we get too deep into it, um, I have with me today Adina Arden Cooper. Um, Adina is a, a local, what, what um, word do you prefer? Are you a therapist? Are you a counselor? Are you a psychologist? What, what do you... Either any... Well, I'm not a psychologist. I'm a counselor or a therapist. Okay. But um, technically, I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor. Got it. Cool. And Adina um, has her own 
uh, practice, is that right? Called Firebird Creative? Yes. Cool. And um, Adina offers transformational therapy and integrative health coaching. Uh, she's based out of the Asheville area. If you're interested in checking out more, you can um, go to firebirdcreative.me. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to have have you here today. Thanks for joining me. Um, this is our, I don't even know, maybe 16th or 17th episode of Breathing Room. Um, and as we were discussing before we started recording, um, historically, the focus has been um, on mental health and creativity and where the two intersect, mm-hmm. but really from the perspective of the individual who's having those experiences. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to kind of expand that and get the practitioner's point of view. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Therapy is something that I'm a huge advocate of. Um, I wish I had gotten involved in it earlier in my life. Mm-hmm. Like It's something that I think is incredibly beneficial when um, it's introduced to children and it's something that they're doing willingly. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It can backfire if it's something they're more like forced into. Absolutely. But um, yeah, it's been probably about five years now that I've been doing some type of therapy in my life. A lot of just kind of traditional talk therapy. I've done some more extensive um, DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the most helpful out of anything that I've done. Mm -hmm. Um, But in taking a look at um, some of the things that you offer, I, I think it's stuff that's outside of the wheelhouse that I've experimented with and I'm mm-hmm. really interested in learning more about. Cool. Um, like you mentioned on your website, um, shadow work mm-hmm. as being something that you do. And I really only know it um, very um, kind of unfam- I'm very unfamiliar with the concept. So look, I w- I'd like to start there. Could you tell me a little bit about what shadow work is? Sure. And um, what one of those sessions traditionally kind of looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, shadow work is about um, bringing what is in your unconscious mind to your conscious mind, so things you're not um, easily aware of. And that can also be, um, you know, any sort of, like, repressed parts of self mm. um, that you keep hidden Right. And you're not really willing to examine or look at. Okay. So, I mean, you can kind of take it literally. It's really about examining the darker parts of yourself that maybe you're unaware of that can be a huge part of what yeah. guide the way you act and think and feel. Yeah. I mean, I think shadow work is just all about looking at what you're not really actively aware of or looking at. And, um, I mean, I see any kind of trauma work as shadow work because you're, you're diving into those darker parts, uh, directly. And it's, what I do is I encourage people to lean into those, um, the things that they fear, the things that they don't want to talk about. Um, because what I always say is like, the only way out is through, it's like, I feel like I'm a guide helping people um, through the fire, you know, they have to kind of walk through the flame or over the coals yeah. and they resist it and it's scary and they don't want to do it. Um, so I'm there to, to support and assist and provide encouragement and guidance along the way. Do you kind of provide prompts as you're going through to, because I mean, if these are things that you're not necessarily aware of, I'm wondering like, how, how do I become aware of them? Yeah. What's the process for that? Well, the, I, I'm an EMDR therapist. And so EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And um, it's a form of uh, trauma treatment that accesses what is in your subconscious mind um, by activating, stimulating your brain 
Um, and I think that is a wonderful tool. That's a primary way that we get at what people aren't necessarily conscious of um, is through that process. But yes, there are some prompts. I mean, it's more like inquiry um, and encouraging people to look at things. And, um, And when I, I mean, I can tell sometimes when they're resisting certain topics or certain um, maybe with holding information. And so I gently sort of prod them yeah. to go exactly where they don't necessarily want to go. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's funny being on this side of therapy. Mm-hmm. I probably spent the first two years lying to the person I was mm-hmm. paying to help me. And that person probably knew you were lying. I hope so. <laughs> I don't think I'm a very good liar, yeah. but it, I kind of had to have my own breakthrough and like, what's the point of doing this if I'm not going to be exactly. honest and get to the core of what's going on here? Exactly. And it it initially kind of put a bad taste in my mouth for therapy because I found that I was just in this echo chamber of validation that I created. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't find it to be very helpful. So I'm like, man, this is bullshit. This doesn't work. Yeah. I don't understand it. And then I'm like, oh, it's because I'm actively working against it yeah it's impressive that you were able to to recognize that and understand it i mean i find when i'm working with clients who are doing that i I can tell yeah and and one of the things that you know when i offer a consultation before people even sign on with me and one of the things i often like to say is like i expect you to show up you know like this is this is for you and you have to participate in the process and also try to feel that out through that initial conversation so that I can make sure that the person who is, you know, walking into the therapy room is the right, we're the right fit for each other. Sure. Um, because I don't do well when people are really resistant. Um, it, it, I mean, I think most therapists would say that it makes our job really difficult. Um, but ultimately, you know, I'm not the one healing anyone or doing you know i'm just the support right and so what you get out of it is what you put into it absolutely and and i think the more that people know and understand that the less we'll hear it's bullshit and doesn't work (laughs) right and on like on the theme of like shadow work i think for me at least what i find when I, when I tend to repress things or bury them deep down or I don't want to address them or talk about them, a lot of that is my own ego and being mm-hmm. afraid of what other people are going to think about it. Absolutely. So that always translates, whether I'm talking to my best friend or my therapist, I'm, I find that I'm inherently worried what this other person thinks of me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, in whatever way possible, break that barrier down mm-hmm. and realize that. Um, this person, as my therapist, has probably heard way worse. Um, uh-huh. They are not judging me in any way. <laughs> and I'm only going to get the full benefit if I, like you said, really show up and open up. Mm-hmm. And I find that that is, I mean, in the work that I do, that is so rewarding. When people do make themselves vulnerable and 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 show up honestly and authentically, there's nothing they can tell me that's going to make me think less of them. If anything... I, I just am in awe and honoring the disclosures mm. and the, and the trust, you yeah. know, being yeah. entrusted with these, 
these intense parts of self. Um, It's a beautiful thing. It is. And it's unfortunate that we don't see it like that in ourselves. We see it as these Mm, things that we should be ashamed of. Exactly. Nobody can ever know. And that's the shadow work piece. You know, that's the part that I'm like, bring it on, bring it out. We're, we're not hiding this thing in the closet anymore. We're bringing it out and we're giving it a place at the table. Yeah. And, and that totally transforms it. It, it, And, and I've seen people, um, yeah, their whole relationship with themselves transform through that, that work. And what you're speaking to, you know, the, the concerns about how, we seem to others and the opinions of, I mean, my gosh, that's m- everyone, I think, I think has, so. yeah. deals with that on some level, of yeah. course, some more than others. But yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The more I learn about therapy um, and just all the different modalities and the different ways you can approach it, it really starts to add more value to something that I have in my life. Like I belong to a 12 step program, Mm -hmm. which is another thing that gets a really bad reputation. And there are a lot of misconceptions about what it really is. Mm -hmm. But, um, a lot of the work that you do in the fourth and fifth step, as well as the eighth and ninth step, sounds like it's really closely related to shadow work. Mm -hmm. Um, in the fourth step, you're making what they call a fearless moral inventory. Mm. So you're sitting down and making a list of all of your fears, mm-hmm. all the all of the resentments you hold against other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you take a look at your sex inventory. Mm-hmm. So it really is like going into the deepest, darkest spots that most people don't have an opportunity to look at. Yep. And that's that's the part that I'm currently working through right now, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. I would rather do anything else. Like I'll set an hour timer on my phone and sit down to work on the list. Mm-hmm. And after like ten minutes, I'm like, I, I just can't find the motivation to get through this i'm gonna go watch some netflix or something yeah yeah well certainly no um harm in chunking it up so that it's digestible for you but yes absolutely and i think i mean my i personally think everyone should spend some time in that kind of work and um i mean i just have pretty strong opinions too about how we teach children yeah and how we teach children about communication and emotions and relationship with self i mean we don't right (laughs) really honestly um some parents of course do a better job of that than others but um in schools there is a lot more that could be done to i i think bring you know working with children bringing children in better relationship with themselves and others helps us all exactly helps evolve our society so Yeah, I remember when I did uh, my DBT course, and for those who aren't familiar, it's Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and I'm going to do a really poor job explaining Mm -hmm. it, but essentially it is really a tool and a mechanism to help with emotional regulation, first with starting to understand and recognize emotions as they show up in yourself, and then giving you alternative outlets for acting on those emotions. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, one of the first things I said when it when it clicked for me in one of the first few sessions, I was like, why didn't they teach me this in school? Right. Why, why am I learning about fucking Christopher Columbus or exactly. whatever? But why am I not learning how to deal with anger or shame when it shows up mm-hmm. and where I feel it in my body? Like, mm-hmm. I, I had to start from ground zero. I had a list of emotions and I had to go through and say, like, fear. I don't know what that feels like. I don't know where I feel it. Yeah. Like, I know what I'm scared, I think. But... Mm-hmm. It's just amazing how 
far removed I was in mm-hmm. terms of my relationship with my own emotions. And that's our culture, right? Like we are we are taught in our society that emotions are a hindrance. They get in the way. They're a problem. Yeah. Quit being so emotional. Yeah. Um, but we're human. I know. <laughs> and they're part of our experience. And they're an important part. You know, I see emotions as like road signs on the highway. They tell right. you where to go. They let you know when you're going the wrong way. They, they yeah, they, they just help gu- guide you through your life experience. But um, when I started my career, I actually began as a school counselor. Okay. And there are many amazing school counselors out there doing wonderful work, trying to do exactly what we're talking about here, teaching kids um, emotional intelligence yeah. and ways of resolving conflict peacefully and all that. Um, but sadly, even though those folks are there, they're, they're few. Yeah. They're overworked. Um, yeah, there are not enough. <laughs> per student and yes um like all educators i guess right, but um right. but then it is like i found one of the the really frustrating things was uh just getting access to students mm. because of course the priority at school is the is academics core academics right and um unless they're the, the child has like significant behavioral issues or, or some thing that's actively disrupting class, um, it can often be hard to get access to those kids. Um, kids that are just struggling because there's something going on at home or, and yeah. maybe they're not acting out overtly, but you know that there's more to the story. Sure. Um, that was a very frustrating part of trying to do my work in a in an academic setting yeah well it's interesting and i have a pretty strong opinion on this when it comes to academics um i've seen some really good articles recently about just the focus of academics especially in this country really not even being about educating being about performance on standardized testing mm-hmm, for sure <laughs> and that's a whole nother conversation <laughs> but just the the stresses and pressures that come along with that. I mean, yeah. I remember being in first grade and having to sit down for a week and fill out these stupid bubble sheets. Totally. And like just knowing that if I don't do well on this test, it's going to dictate mm-hmm. my placement for the next year. Um, it could dictate in some cases funding for schools if mm-hmm. they have low performing students. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, for sure. I just think it has way too much power in our educational system. It does. And I mean, with that too, I think we've come up, we're coming along, it's getting better. And I think, you know, where we are here in Asheville, there are um, some amazing schools and, and incredible teachers uh, in this area too, who sort of look at things differently and, and offer a different approach to education besides teaching to the test. Um, that said, education is education. And again, we're focused very much on those core academic subjects science um social studies math uh reading and literature and all that which is wonderful but there's not nearly enough of what we're talking about here that social emotional learning um you know i think of my own educational experience and (sighs) learning how to resolve conflict peacefully learning how to communicate effectively Learning how to love myself yeah. would have been so much more valuable to my life than yeah. 
algebra (laughs) (laughs) or memorizing dates or any of those things. And I mean, yes, we have to work in this life. We have to choose a career and we have to be prepared. That's what education is for, right? To prepare us to be little worker bees and whatever we're going to do. But first and foremost, we're human beings interacting with other human beings. Right. And, and, and we are so poorly, um, prepared. And I think there are a lot of things that work against self-discovery, like one being, and this is something that really kind of started in like the early to mid nineties, I believe, but schools implementing zero tolerance policies, Mm -hmm. like an example Mm -hmm. of that, um, I was in, I don't know fifth or sixth grade and I was in gym class and we were playing handball or some kind of contact sport and I was uh, defending somebody and I knocked the ball out of their hand Mm -hmm. and they got so frustrated, angry, whatever it was that they just hit me in the jaw Mm. and I ended up having to go to the hospital. I mean, like it was this whole crazy thing. I got suspended for that. You got suspended for that. Yeah, because the school had a zero tolerance policy. And I was part of this altercation, therefore, wow, there's yeah. no questions asked. Yeah, that's... and it just, you know, and I was really confused about that for a long time. Like, what did I do wrong? Why am I in trouble? Mm-hmm. And then realized that it's just really kind of a a broken system, unfortunately. And yep. I think a lot of people fall victim to that, where if they are in a situation where they're being bullied mm-hmm. and they oh my gosh. act out mm-hmm. against that, and then they be they're punished for that, right? What's the message that comes along with that? Exactly. Not to stand up for yourself? Exactly. It's confusing. Very confusing. Yeah. And I mean, certainly, what did you learn? I learned not that. to get punched in the jaw. Yeah. Which that's out of your control. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who knew that just playing the game would result right. in that? But yeah, it's, it's just sad because that's an opportunity to, to teach kids yeah. conflict resolution skills and whatever. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. We are definitely not um, encouraged to familiarize ourselves with the emotions, our own emotional experiences, understanding how we're feeling them, um, and how to address and, and manage them. Yeah. I mean, like, to the academics piece, if... And I, I don't know that I would still wholeheartedly agree with it, but if we were top performing across all those categories, science and math and um, reading comprehension, that would be one thing. Maybe I would see the system working a little bit, but Mm -hmm. we're not. Like we're not even in the top 10 or 15 Mm -hmm. in the world in a lot of those categories. Right. So like, it's not even like we're doing a good job with what we are focusing on. Right. And I believe we would be if we put more emphasis on um, emotions and interesting and and relational connections. Yeah. You know, those think about it like those classes where kids make a strong personal connection with the teacher. They're bonded to the teacher. They perform better. Oh, yeah. Than they do in a class where the teacher's an asshole. Yeah. we do the same at work. We're going to work harder and better for a boss that treats us with respect sure. and appreciates and values what we do and makes that known than one who is, you know, strictly authoritative and unkind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have this too, but I can look back on my 
uh, educational career. And there are like a few teachers that really stand out. It's like, wow, mm-hmm. this was a really important figure in my life. Mm-hmm. And, and the- at the time, maybe it was someone I didn't like very much. Mm-hmm. Like Mrs. Gordon. Mm. Fuck Mrs. Gordon. No. <laughs> she gave me my only C in mm. middle school. And it like, it broke me. I was mm. like, man, I am i can't do this. Mm-hmm. I'm failing. Why is she so hard? Why does she hate me? All- mm-hmm. And now I look back and I'm like, okay, I see you, Mrs. Gordon. <laughs> little tough love, Miss- yep. Mrs. Gordon was yep. trying to push you to meet your potential. She was. Yeah. Yeah, I, didn't- I wish I could have seen that at the time, but. Yeah, but the piece that interests me in what you just said is that that self-identification, that like ranking of self according to the grade. Oh, man, this is another thing I have a strong opinion on because school teaches us a couple things with the way that we grade students. It teaches us that in life you get direct and very clearly interpretable feedback on how you do and that you always know where you stand when it comes to your performance. And that's not the way the world works. No, not at all. I was so confused when I got my first job out of college Mm -hmm. and I had to go a full year before getting a performance evaluation. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how I was doing. Yeah. I would constantly ask my boss like multiple times a month, like, Hey, am I doing okay? Am Mm -hmm. I, is there anything I can do better? And finally she was like, just do your job. You're doing great. Like, uh-huh. But I was, I was expecting that validation of like, I wanted that stamp of approval after yeah. every project. Mm-hmm. I hear that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that I'm it's, sure. It's confusing. I mean, and when I was working with kids, I, I saw it a lot. Kids really didn't, a lot of their identity and sense of self was tied into academic performance, which in, you know, for the kids that make straight A's, great. Yeah. Ish. I, they still have their <laughs> challenges with that. Sure. But but for kids who do not perform well academically, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard kids say, I'm stupid, I'm stupid, over and over again. And it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, working with them on understanding multiple intelligences and that there are different ways to, that, that we're smart is helpful. But again, I think that's something that as adults, we still struggle with. Definitely. And it's interesting because like when we first start children out in the educational system, when they're in preschool and kindergarten, preschool if they're lucky, right? I guess not everyone gets to go to preschool, but um, the things you're graded on then is like, how does Rob interact with others? Mm -hmm. Is he, um, is he too bossy? Like I I can't really recall all the things, but it's not Mm -hmm. how well he does with his ABCs or it's like, it's really focused on more of these soft skills. But then once you hit first grade, it becomes focused on how you perform academically. That's Mm -hmm. really it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, I don't know. I have, I have two kids, so I see what's on their report cards nowadays. And there is, um, both uh, in emphasis on um, academic performance and um, like social um, wellness, I guess, how well they're yeah. doing in that area. At least for my younger son, who, who happens to be in a local charter school, so he's not in a traditional sure. academic setting. How old is he? He is 14. Is He's in eighth grade. Okay. So he'll be heading to high school next year. Um, but there, but it is nice to see that they are looking at some of that other stuff as well. And like I said, you know, there are some awesome schools in this area that are that are really doing a wonderful job of of educating the whole child. Yeah, one that comes to mind. I don't know the most about them, but the Waldorf School. Mm-hmm. I think that's one that's kind of a non traditional approach. Yeah. Um, 
But unfortunately, like, I mean, like a lot of things, you could even say this about therapy, but it's really kind of pay to play. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you don't have the funds to bring to the table, sorry, you don't, you don't get this education. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that a lot of things are kind of that way. I even have that view, I think, on therapy, really. A lot of it is inaccessible to folks of certain socioeconomic backgrounds. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, like, uh, I had the privilege of going to treatment for substance abuse and being there. It was amazing just how whitewashed it was. And mm. there there was little to no diversity amongst the hundred of hundred mm-hmm. people that were there. Mm-hmm. It was just pretty eye-opening to me that, like, mental health is still very early on in mm-hmm. terms of how serious it's being taken mm-hmm, absolutely. and access to it is still very limited. Do you find that as well? Um, I do find that. I think it's shifting and changing, but slowly, um, you know, I think about uh, just generate like how different generations look at therapy and their attitudes toward therapy, you know, like my parents' generation, it's like, it's something you, you don't discuss it, yeah. If you're going to therapy, it means there's something wrong with you yep. and it's it's shameful. My generation, a little bit different, and I'm 46, just mm-hmm. to kind of put it in perspective for people, but, you know, a little bit different. And um, But I think still like, oh, that's something like you have to do if you, you have a big problem or something that our parents made us do when we were angsty teenagers right. or something was going on. Um, but now I see younger folks, um, really embracing it and looking at it as a a necessary piece of personal wellness generally. And again, we're here in Asheville where, um, I I feel like probably the majority of the city is in therapy, (laughs) um, but very open-minded and, and open to that process. But yes, it's still stigmatized. Um, but it seems starting to shift. Yeah. I think it's definitely taken a turn for the better. Um, something you had on your website that stood out to me and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but you had a quote on there referring to someone's um, experience as being like, an entangled mass of yarn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really like that. And it like it made me think about myself. And just as I've been trying to untangle this mess over the past five years, how much goes into what, like, how tight that's woven up. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that's come up for me that like I've spent a lot of time working through, and I hate the phrase just because I think it's lost some of its potency because of overuse. But I think toxic masculinity plays a really large part Mm -hmm. in just how resistant, like even a lot of my peers are to therapy. Mm -hmm. Because from a young age, I was taught like showing any negative emotion was weak. Mm -hmm. If I'm scared, buck up. You shouldn't be scared. It's only a spider. Get over it. Mm -hmm. If I'm sad, stop crying. There's Mm -hmm. There's no crying on the baseball field. Absolutely. And it just taught me that any of these emotions on this side, these are bad. I should not feel these. And if I do feel these, there's something wrong with me. So I definitely shouldn't tell anybody that I'm feeling it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I subscribe to that for most of my life. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who still do. And it's sad. Definitely. Definitely. People still do. And that is that is a mindset that has permeated our culture. And so when we think of toxic masculinity and how, how it's addressed now... Um, 
you know, there's that feminist slant and we can see how, you know, women have been oppressed by this. And what you're speaking to is how men have been affected by it. But even, you know, the broader umbrella, just our entire culture, how it has been affected by that mindset that you're describing. Sure. Although women generally, girls have been given more permission to be, to, to communicate their emotions and access their emotions. Of course, there's a whole, you know, other side to that where it's like they're too emotional and, yeah. and there's that put on them. Um, but even though they've had more permission, there's still that, that overarching, but it's not okay to be emotional. It's not okay to have feelings. I hear that all the time too. Um, just people coming in, you know, having gotten that message usually from parents that they, they were not allowed to have emotions. Having emotions meant that, um, they were weak. Yeah. I think the spectrum is a little bit different for women than it is for men, excuse me, in terms of emotions that they are and are not allowed to feel. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of words that we attach to women that have a a really sharp meaning like mm-hmm. if you tell a woman she's being bossy right what does that mean that she's like trying to take lead in a situation mm-hmm. and you feel uncomfortable <laughs> with it <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah i think that th- that's there it's just slanted a little bit differently mm-hmm. and i think it's confusing for everybody yeah absolutely i agree and i'm i'm i mean we're now getting into a little bit of gender discrepancies and stuff but um yeah, I guess part of the work that I do, too, is helping people integrate those sides of themselves. We all contain both masculine and feminine yep. parts and energies, and um, I think it's crucial for any individual of any gender to f- find the proper balance of those sure. energies. That's something I was really self-conscious about for a long time. Like, I feel like I have some qualities that are more feminine in nature, mm-hmm. and I always used to really suppress them, mm-hmm. I, especially around my guy friends. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way I would show any of that vulnerability. But as I've become more comfortable and aware of that part of myself, it's almost seemed like a superpower to me. Mm, it it's is, like, yeah. Oh, okay, if I can get in touch with this, I have the ability to relate with so many more people in so many different ways. Mm-hmm than if I try to hide it and pretend it doesn't exist. Absolutely. And most importantly, yourself more yeah. authentically. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a Definitely. big deal. <laughs> yeah. And I'm encouraged, you know, a lot of the younger folks that I work with. So for me, younger folks, people, um, you know, in their early to, to mid twenties, really, um, really doing that work of integrating those, uh, parts of themselves and being open and vulnerable about who they really are and, and showing up in non, mm. I guess, non-traditional ways. Yeah. Um, and it's beautiful and lovely to, to witness. What do you find are like the primary barriers that someone has to work through to even recognize these parts of themselves? Uh, cultural conditioning, yeah. <laughs> number one, probably. Yeah. Um, and self-loathing. Some, yeah. some degree of self-loathing that is usually influenced by cultural conditioning. Cultural conditioning being that from the broader culture, our society, you know, our communities within our societies and our, our family culture. Mm. Um, the messages that, that we get from there that are 
like what we were just talking about is not okay to be a certain way or you have to do this or be this way. Um, it sends, you know, a different aspect right into the shadow and people don't, um, I mean, they're not conscious of that happening. Often it happens so young. Yeah. We, we're, we're not even aware of it. And then it, it keeps happening throughout our lives as we're like, oh, I, you know, I might feel that or I might think that way or, but I can't. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, so often ways of living are presented to us without many options. Um, and so, you know, whether it be religion, yeah. you know, this is the reli- this is the right religion that your family tells you that you're supposed to follow or, or career paths, educational paths, uh, relationship structures, yep. um, things like that. So we just follow the herd <laughs> yeah, and do what we're supposed to do, but leave a part of ourselves behind or stuff a part of ourselves down. And often that can just, um, I mean, it. It can lead to intense anxiety, depression, substance use and abuse, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the work I've been doing in my own like therapeutic uh, practice has been identifying these voices within that come from an earlier version of myself. Yeah. Because that's something that I've noticed is like 90% of what shows up for me, the mm-hmm. same shit that would have shown up for me when I was five years old. Yep. It's just now I'm 20 plus years removed from it. So mm-hmm. I don't even know where it's coming from anymore. Mm-hmm. So like a helpful thing I've been doing is trying to label all these different voices. Yeah. Like my therapist encourages me to even name them. Yeah. Which yeah, I thought was a little cheesy that. at first. I but do that sometimes. Like the more I've done it, the more I'm like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Because then you can identify like oh this is something that my mother told me from a very young age so Mm -hmm. no wonder it's showing up for me Mm -hmm. so when you see it come up you can acknowledge it thank it for being there and move on exactly exactly i always tell people that whenever the um emotional response doesn't match the situation at hand yeah in other words you're overreacting right um you're not bad or wrong for overreacting something's getting activated and understanding that that the reaction you're having is to more than just this precipitating event um, is super helpful. And what I will encourage people to do is when they feel the feelings in response to whatever is going on, take a moment and just ask yourself, how old do I feel right now? Mm, I and, love that. And often, you know, it's like, oh, I feel 14 yeah. or I feel five. Yeah. And when you can identify that, you know, like that's that's inner child work. You know, that's when you know, like, OK, that that part of yourself is having a reaction and you need to show up for that that version of you. Yeah. And do a little bit of reparenting, loving on that part. Yeah, becoming your own inner compassionate parent. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that that reminds me of some work that I've done on stuck points, which has been really helpful. Mm -hmm. Just kind of take a look at my life chronologically and look at all these different points that I learned. I am X, so therefore Y. Yeah. And just these core beliefs that I have about myself that just don't enable me to get past them unless I really try to work on breaking them down. Yeah. And that's really hard. It's really hard for a lot of people. They cling to these forms of identity, even when they're unhealthy or unhelpful, because 
fear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really scary when you're like, but I don't know who I am mm -hmm. without that. If I'm not depressed, who am I? Or if I'm not whatever they're identifying with that, that is not serving them, um, it's just oftentimes scary to release that and let that go. Definitely. I can relate to that with my depression and my substance use. Those were two things that for years became really who I was. Mm -hmm. I was the depressed friend who smoked too much weed mm -hmm. and was the first one to pass out at parties. And like I had this identity that just revolved around these two things that I really struggled with and didn't know how to identify. Mm -hmm. But I knew that if they weren't there... Who was I then? Right. And and who are you going to hang out with? Right. Who are your friends going to be? Your whole life has been structured around this identity yeah. oftentimes. Yeah. And it started from such a young age. Like, um, I can remember being a kid and just alcohol was something that was kind of commonplace in my household. Mm -hmm. um, just every night with dinner, like mom and dad would have a drink. Mm -hmm. And just kind of seeing that from a young age really normalized it for me. Yeah. Um, and then I, I didn't, I didn't drink or I didn't really do anything until pretty late on. Like I was sober until I was 21. Mm. It was three days after my 21st birthday that I had my first sip of alcohol mm. and I just kind of hit the ground running. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's amazing how you kind of just live what you learn at a certain point. Like it felt like I was on autopilot. Like I wasn't even consciously making decisions. It was just mm -hmm. yeah, doing what felt right. Yeah, you you absorbed that by watching that. And yeah. and I'm sure I mean I don't know your family, but you know most people use substances as they're just coping, dealing with it's a coping mechanism. Sure. It's a way of managing stress rather than really unpacking it yep. and talking about it and and looking at it. Um it's easier to just escape it. Yeah, for me like I deal with pretty intense social anxiety mm -hmm. that's been there for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. Like I could be in a room of all the people I love most and still feel like I have no place in that room. Mm -hmm. Like I just don't belong, don't fit in. It's just been this kind of constant struggle. And the f after the first drink I had, that just melted away. Oh, yeah. That wasn't there anymore. Yeah. My confidence was through the roof. I could talk to anybody. I could relate to anybody. Mm -hmm. I felt funnier. I felt more popular. Just like all these things yeah. about these core misconceptions I had about myself mm -hmm. seemed to go away and seemed to get better mm -hmm. until they didn't. Right. Because <laughs> you're still yourself. <laughs> exactly. And when you wake up the next morning and that's no longer there and you have all the consequences to deal with. Absolutely. And then fast forward even beyond that, like when I... When I first got sober, it was amazing to me the amount of repressed emotion that started coming back. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of grief that I had stuffed down with like mm -hmm. the passing of my father. Mm -hmm. I thought I I thought I stored that away deep enough that it wasn't going to come back. That like really bit me in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. Like because I wasn't processing it. I was just trying to do anything I could to avoid it. And it doesn't work that you can't get rid of it. You can't. You can maybe <laughs> delay it. Yeah. But it's going to come back like a tidal wave. It will. And that's the thing. When people are really resistant to therapy, they don't want to unpack it. And sometimes all the people come into session and they've got some big stuff that really needs to be sorted through and and they, they don't want to sometimes, you yeah. know, they, they and I get it, you know, 
on, on certain days, you, you just don't have the energy for it. But when it's like a consistent thing, like they don't want to unpack that stuff um, or they don't want to go to therapy at all, it's like you've got this incredible weight that you're you're carrying around that you're dragging with you every single day and you're pretending it's not there you're choosing to not look at it but it is affecting you yeah and and it makes so much more sense to go in and do the work of like releasing yourself yeah you know un- unpacking all that baggage so that you don't have to lug it around all the time anymore and if you don't it's going to show up in some way it's going to show up as relationship conflict it's yep. going to show up in your career or it's going to show up in your physical body as some form of illness or ailment and so yeah i think it's really important to do it and it's amazing just the number of ways it could come out sideways Mm-hmm. I mean, like unconsciously, yep. like for me, it was anger, like after immediately getting sober, any emotion could lead to a place of just unhinged rage. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like punching a wall, like yeah. just, just these things that I'd never experienced in my life before, mm-hmm. just didn't know how to come out or how to be processed. Mm-hmm. And it just, it was, it was not graceful by any stretch yeah, of the imagination, yeah. but I think it was an important part of the process for right. me to realize just how much I had bottled up. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it, it was begging to be released Yeah, and just, yeah, needed, needed to come out. Yeah. So I'm curious a little bit about, um, the types of clients that you, mm. you work with or historically have worked with. Yeah. Um, like if you have a primary diagnosis or diagnoses that mm. you work with or enjoy working with mm-hmm. and also how often you, you truly see clients progress mm-hmm. and how long that takes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, first of all, I guess I'll speak to the diagnosis thing. I dislike giving diagnoses. Yeah. I have to for insurance billing purposes. If I didn't, I would never do it. Yeah. <laughs> Unless, you know, there was like a severe extreme case. I will honestly tell you that the majority of what I work with is is depression and anxiety. Um, you know, some other labels we could slap on there. But um, really... <laughs> they're human beings yeah. <laughs> just trying to figure out how to how to be content and happy human beings yeah. and there are often many things that that get in the way of that and the levels of disturbance vary um but uh yeah that's what i work with i do a lot of trauma treatment with folks um yeah and we kind of unpack those demons yeah. <laughs> that haunt them and um and sort through that but my ideal clients are, like I said before, they want to be there. They're yeah. ready to do the work, and they they often just don't know how. Mm-hmm. Um, they're struggling. They, they're in the fog, and they need someone to help guide them out. But they are the ones that do it. They're very... I mean, the people are worried. They amaze me. My clients amaze me. They are incredibly resilient, courageous, strong, um, and they show up for themselves consistently, even when it's really, really hard to do that. Um, I tend to work with folks who are artists, misfits, nonconformists, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> the weirdos. I love them best. Um, 
and yeah, they often have a sort of open-minded spiritual slant and, um, yeah. So I, I like to, I, I guess here I'll speak a little bit to just kind of how I operate as a therapist. Um, you know, I'm a very, it's a very relational process, you know, to me, the, the relationship between myself and the client is foundational. Yeah. It's the root of everything. They have to feel comfortable with me. Um, they have to trust me. And so, you know, a lot of energy and time is spent on building that up and making sure they feel comfortable. And then, um, I am often led by my intuition, I mean, I think a lot of therapists are, but to me, that's a more powerful tool than any um, formal theory sure. <laughs> or, or book knowledge. Yeah. You know, how sessions look really differ from person to person. And of course, there are some things that are similar, both because I'm the uniting factor in all those sessions right. and just the type of client that I draw in, you know, there are similarities between them. Um, but I, I really, it's like a delicate dance. I feel like that I do with clients and kind of reading their, this is going to sound kind of woo, but reading their energies and, and where they're at and what they are, um, kind of up for. And then, that doesn't sound woo, and I would definitely okay. tell you if it did. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> and sort of where, you know, where we need to go. So when it comes to, like, what we do in session, sometimes it's just talking. Yeah. Sometimes it's EMDR. Sometimes it's um, creative works, mostly, like, visual art sort of prompts or, or process, sometimes writing, things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of a, a mixed bag of of that kind of stuff. And I know I veered way off your question. No, that, it, <laughs> and it I spawned like remember. probably 18 more questions. Okay. And I'm trying to figure out which one I want to ask the most. <laughs> um, I think I want to pull on the diagnosis thread a little bit more because sure. this is something that is often the first step of therapy. And I think the <laughs> scariest part of it for people, like I know for me, um, I I started therapy in January of 2017. I think it was around that time. And my first ever session within 20 minutes of being there, the therapist that I was seeing said, okay, so you obviously have major depressive disorder. Ah. I was like, whoa, what the fuck is that? That sounds t awful. Like, let's talk about that. Yeah. And um, it... It was hard to process. Like, I found myself on WebMD that night. And I was yeah. like, maybe depressive disorder. What, mm -mm. what does this mean? What <laughs> what, is, what does this mean for me? How, how do I move forward from this? Yeah. And it took me a long time to realize that all a diagnosis is, and I would like to hear your perspective on this and correct me if you feel like I'm wrong. It's really just a label that helps guide treatment. Yes. From 
a therapeutic standpoint, mm -hmm. from a medication standpoint. Mm -hmm. Like it just kind of helps point you in a direction. Yes, I agree with it that. It shouldn't be something that you're married to or identify with as a core feature of who you are. No, most definitely. And that's why I am reluctant. Like, I don't like to look at people as disordered. Yeah. <laughs> they may be struggling. They may lack skills or tools when we really peel away the layers, they've never been taught. It's what we were talking about before. They yeah. just don't know. And it doesn't mean they're bad or wrong. <laughs> and and one of the things that's very important to me is that people understand that. When they come to me, I, I really work hard to normalize their experiences and yeah. help them know that they're not fucked up. They're yeah. struggling. Yeah. Being a human is hard. It is. And understanding that and parsing out the different influences that make it difficult for your individual life is, is so tremendously helpful. But yes, I, I definitely don't like to label people and I definitely don't want them to identify with a diagnosis. Yeah. And I have seen them, you know, the, the other part of the question that you asked me before is have I seen people progress? Yes. Awesome. Oh my gosh. I have seen people totally transform where they have come in and I'm thinking in my head, okay, if we're talking diagnosis and treatment planning, we're looking at, you know, borderline personality disorder, you yeah. know, some like major uh, disturbance. And, and through careful and, and consistent work that I've seen it melt away. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> I've seen someone build their, re it, what, in the ins instances I'm thinking of, a couple in particular, really what was at the heart of the matter was just a, a really um, distorted, fucked up relationship with self mm. that affected their ability to function normally in various situations and settings. And by going in and strengthening and building that core relationship with self, helping people learn how to love themselves it just ripples out and wow. everything else can can fall into place and yes people who are highly suicidal you know lots of suicidal ideation move completely away from that into you know living a life that they're excited about and looking to the future i'm, I'm really glad to hear that yeah for some reason that's not the answer i was expecting i don't mm -hmm. know why but <laughs> no that's that's really yeah. good to hear um, and, you know, I think part of what perpetuates the stigma around mental health is we still don't really have the vernacular to make it something that people can digest. Mm -hmm. Like when you talk about someone who's dealing with depression, what do you call it? You call it a mental health issue mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. a mental health problem, or they were in the mental hospital or the psychiatric right. ward. Like there are all these like really big, scary words. Mm -hmm. I have a friend um, named Kat Dolan. Um, she has her own profit called out of your mind. Mm -hmm. And she likes to refer to it as mental health opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I really have kind of adapted that language in my own like explanation of these things, because that's really all it is. Yeah. It's an opportunity to, improve your relationship with yourself it's an opportunity to change the way that you relate to other people mm -hmm. like looking at it as trying to flip the script and make it something that's not so negative and scary and absolutely. overwhelming absolutely and you know in what you're talking about too there's also those 
people who really want to identify as someone who has mental health issues and um, in a way that's like, you know, I'm struggling, I have issues, it, it, it again becomes part of their core identity that they have a hard time separating from. But it's interesting to me how we <laughs> we love to pathologize mental health, you know, and 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 make it like negative what you're saying is so different from the way we address our physical health. Oh yeah. You know, we don't walk around with like, oh, you know, I I I'm a migraine sufferer. Yeah. You know, I have yeah. to, or I have GI issues and, um, or whatever the, the physical ailment is, we just kind of deal with it and address it. And which isn't to say it doesn't come up in conversation or whatever sometimes, but we don't identify with it the way that we do m- mental health. And, mm. um, to me, it, it's all part of the same thing. Right. <laughs> you know, your mental health and your physical health are, connected and we're just humans in these bodies and all of it is is part of that oh man that makes me think i was definitely like that when i when i first started my journey and i'm getting these labels like major depressive disorder Mm -hmm. generalized anxiety disorder um i was misdiagnosed as bipolar 2 early on Mm. at least in my assessment misdiagnosed yeah well you would know best you know best (laughs) based on one Um, what they labeled hypomanic episode that I had, Mm. which was induced by the major trauma of my father's suicide Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. substance use was present. So like, um, but for me, I think the difference is if I have diabetes, I can't use that as a scapegoat for being an asshole. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. for me, depression was the perfect scapegoat for Mm -hmm. so many things. Mm -hmm. And I really latched onto it at first. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't want to do this thing. Sorry, I'm feeling really depressed today. So I'm just going to stay home. Yeah. Or, hey, sorry I snapped at you. Like, I was feeling really depressed that day. Mm -hmm. It just became a way for me to, like, avoid taking responsibility for some poor behaviors. Yeah, that happens a lot. Um, But... Luckily, I was able to kind of see through that and realize, like, it's 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 no excuse at the end of the day. It's mm-hmm. just helpful to understand maybe where it's coming from. Absolutely. But you still have to own up and take responsibility for how you act out on those things. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to my feeling of, like, I don't want – I don't want the people I work with to identify as disordered. Yeah. I want them to see themselves as healthy and whole, even if they're experiencing – depression or anxiety, you know, those are, um, temporary things that they may be going through, which isn't to say, I mean, I recognize and fully understand that depression and anxiety, you know, those kinds of things can last a really long time, Yeah. but ultimately that is not who you are. And to identify with that is sort of, yeah, like kind of nestling into, the experience without trying to change it and, and alter it. If you really want to get, wow, be healthy, fit in your mind, you have to recognize that um, there's work you can do. Yeah. Just the same as like if you're unhealthy, if you're not eating healthfully, if you're not exercising, you know, you can sit there and go, well, I'm just an unhealthy person, which people, of course, do, or I'm unfit. 
Or you can get a gym membership. Or you could get a gym membership (laughs) and eat some kale. Exactly. (laughs) And kind of change. Yeah. And and similarly, you know, going back to the stigma, another metaphor that I use a lot, people go to the gym and access the support of a personal trainer right? without any shame. You know, they're just like, I need help. Like, this is too big of a job for me to be able to do myself or I need that accountability and that support. And they're not ashamed to to do that or tell people that they might be doing that. A therapist is the exact same thing, you yeah. know. We're we're just the personal trainer there with some expertise, some specialized knowledge, and some uh, support and accountability to help you on your own journey. So, and in the same way that a, a physical trainer is not going to have you bench press four hundred pounds on your first session, exactly. It's up to the therapist to, like you said, read the energy and know what is comfortable and appropriate for that moment yeah it makes me think of like the boiled frogs approach mm-hmm. like yeah you can't turn that heat up too high or the person's gonna jump out yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know it's it's also really important for people to understand how essential it is to choose a therapist that is the right fit for you yeah you know and they do this with with you know this is true of any i think um healthcare provider you know we just go to who we go to because they have the credentials or whatever to deal with and something they're only five minutes away you know, they're only five yeah. minutes yeah exactly um but but particularly with with mental health care um it's just so important. I mean, again, you know, that's my core belief that the the relationship is essential and it, it's such a important part of the therapeutic process. Um, but not everyone is going to serve you in the way you need to be served. Right. And and so it's really helpful to, um, you know, do, the, do those consultation calls, become prepared with questions, um, Make sure, you know, as a client seeking support, you kind of have some understanding of what feels good to you and what you're looking for. Definitely. So you'll know it, you know, when you find it instead of just choosing any random person. Yeah, that's that's a conversation that I have pretty frequently with friends who are flirting with the idea of going to therapy, but they're not quite sure yet. Mm-hmm. I always give them the caveat, like, listen, you're probably not going to find your lifelong therapist on your first session. Right. Like for me, I've probably been probably been to six or seven different therapists at this mm-hmm. point before I finally found one that just, I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Yes. I'm so glad that you were persistent and you, you kept on because so often people judge therapy altogether by that one person yeah. and therapy is stupid. It sucks. I went once and I hated it. Yep. And it's like, well, you probably had a shitty therapist or just a therapist who wasn't the right fit yeah. for you. I mean, I've been there. I've, I've had that happen and it's miserable. Yeah. But when you can keep at it and find the person that is the right, it's oh amazing. It feels really good. And so, yeah, I always encourage people to, you know, shop around <laughs> you really have to you really have to trust your intuition mm-hmm. um there was one therapist in particular that i definitely stayed too long with i was i was with this individual for probably about a year mm-hmm. and from the get-go it did not feel right to me yeah um but i felt some kind of weird obligation mm-hmm. to continue seeing them um but like we would be in sessions and they would spend 30 minutes of the 60 minutes like 
drawing like graphs about like trying to explain bipolar disorder and i'm like oh this is really unhelpful like i have google i can look this up yeah yeah do some real work yeah but yeah i felt like i said some kind of obligation to them and felt bad leaving them and it finally Mm -hmm. got to a point where it's like this is something i'm doing for my own well-being if it's not serving me i gotta go somewhere else absolutely and that's something i address in the initial um intake session i'll when we're we're going over my paperwork, one of the things that I go over is exactly kind of what you're speaking to. That if it, I tell people that if it doesn't feel like the right fit, um, or they feel like they need a change, well, number one, to communicate that with me, and maybe yeah. there's something that we can work through together. But if it just doesn't feel right, tell me because I would rather support you in finding someone who is the right fit for you than leaving you back on your own trying to struggle through that again or not receiving any support at all and I tell people you're not going to hurt my feelings you know that's part of this work and if it doesn't feel like a good fit to them it likely doesn't feel like a good fit to me either and I would rather refer them out so they can be supported by the right kind of person and I can be freed up to welcome in someone else who's the right kind of person for me. That's huge. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I wish I would have had that message when I first started. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say to someone who has never been to therapy, mm-hmm. but it's something they are open to and they're just looking for that extra push to go to it? Yeah, I mean, I would probably tell them again, like how incredible and rewarding it is and can be you're going to get into it what you get out of it therapy to me is a form of self-care yeah you know the same as you would schedule an appointment for a massage schedule a therapy appointment (laughs) um it's not always fun and it's not always relaxing but but in the end it it feels good it ought to feel good when you sort through and you work through that and you make progress on yourself. So I would encourage someone to, to again, search for someone that, that feels like a good fit, read the vibe when they meet with the person, if it feels good and, um, and just give it a shot. Yeah. Um, one thing I often hear from people is that, they have this notion that therapy is too expensive, mm-hmm. which can be the case. I mean, depending on where you seek it and if people offer sliding scale or mm-hmm. what kind of mm-hmm. health care you have. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important for people to know that there are options. Like yeah. even in town here, I know of All Souls. Yeah. I think they offer free mm-hmm. therapy or very affordable yeah, think, therapy. Yeah, I think so. And many, even private therapists such as myself, will offer a sliding scale rate. You know, they have a certain number of slots that they'll offer a reduced or discounted rate for folks. Um, And that's not everyone. I will also point out, though, that, you know, I, I, I agree and I think it can be cost prohibitive for some people and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. So is health, physical health care. Yeah, sure thing. But people don't as often question their physician's rates right? or, you know, say that getting a checkup is too expensive. They, they might, um, but less often do we hear that. And it, it, again, that just speaks to mental health being seen as superfluous yeah. and not essential. And 
when you are investing, I mean, the other thing that that I say about this is you're not really paying the, th- I mean, yes, you're paying the therapist, but that's not what you're investing in. You're not investing in your therapist. You're investing in you yeah. and you're worth it. Yeah. And I think that another, I, I definitely recognize when, when folks have very real financial limitations, sure. but oftentimes it's, they might say therapy is too expensive, but they just bought the next best iPhone, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or um, a a really awesome pair of shoes or (laughs) whatever it is. It's all about perceived value. And when you can understand that you are making an investment in yourself and that that is priceless, that's incredibly valuable. Yeah. It makes spending the money a, a bit easier. And with the metaphor of comparing it to physical health, it's much better to spend $100 a checkup every few months than to not go to the doctor for 10 years Mm -hmm. and have to spend $100,000 because something is majorly wrong that you didn't know about. Exactly. It's probably much better to spend $50 a session to go to therapy once a week than get hit with a $20,000 bill because you had to go in for mental health treatment. Right. Or deal with, you know, a repeating pattern of fucked up relationships or, you know, problems in your life that just keeps perpetuating or being being stuck forever in that job you hate. Um, Is that really better (laughs) than making the investment in the thing that will help you move yourself forward in the best way possible? And I think most therapists agree. in that like we don't want our clients to be with us forever yeah i mean i love i don't get me wrong i love my clients and when they go i am sad sure but the but the real goal is for them to be able to move on and and not feel like they need you anymore yeah so um it's Again, it, it, it doesn't have to be a lifelong permanent thing. Once you get the tools you need and you can apply them in your life and move forward healthfully, by all means, do it. And, and that said, I will say there are some of my clients who they're doing awesome. They still love coming to the therapy sure. just because it is that they enjoy that feeling of self-care. And it's just as important to process the positive and successful things in your life as it is to process the challenges. Absolutely. Because what they have in common is they're all temporary and they're all going to pass. And it's important to have a good relationship with those things. Yep. Because I find it challenging to appreciate when things are going well sometimes. Yep. And I have to process that with my therapist and she has to like stop and say like, wow, it sounds like things are going really well. And I'm like, shit, you're right. Yeah. Things are pretty cool right now. And actually, you know, to speak to that a little bit in the context of shadow work, you know, we were talking about the repressed parts and the, the things in your unconscious and the things you don't want to look at. But I do feel like there's it, there's that duality, right? And so an important piece is that. Yeah. Teaching and encouraging people, like we're, we're unpacking that and we're, we're you know, communicating with those demons and we're walking through the fire. But at the same time, we're learning how to enjoy and appreciate and have these experiences. Um, I was just listening to something. Someone mentioned um, that we're always uh, like running away from pain and pursuing pleasure. Yeah. 
But I disagree. I mean, we are, but we are also so often running away from pleasure. Sure. <laughs> and there are so many people who um, struggle with that. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's a big part of things, too, is making sure that you understand how to enjoy I know I struggle with that. Um, we were talking earlier about um, in 12-step work, uh, making that list of fears. Mm-hmm. It was amazing to me how many seemingly contradictory things were on there. Mm-hmm. Like I had a fear of failure. That was one of the first on the list. You, right after it, fear, fear of success. success. Yeah. And I'm like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Then what, what, what am I comfortable <laughs> with? Being in the middle and not experiencing either? Yeah. No. I mean, they're both scary. Fear of being alone, but then also a fear of being intimate with others. Absolutely. Yeah. That's it. I mean, there there is duality to all things. Sure. And, and recognizing and understanding that is so important and incredibly helpful. Yeah. Yeah. There's a quote in the movie Full Metal Jacket about the duality of man, and I wish I could remember it right now because mm-hmm. it's definitely appropriate. But mm-hmm. it's the duality of man. It's the duality of nature. It's everywhere. Sure. There, there is light and dark. There is cold and warm. There yep. is night and day. There is it, it. It's in all things. Absolutely. And I, one of the things I tell to people too, when they come in and they're feeling really down. Um, struggling with a lot of depression you know i let them know like the intensity of the emotion you feel right now on this side of the spectrum what you can feel on the opposite side of the spectrum is in equal measure so just as depressed as you're feeling right now that's your capacity for bliss and ecstasy yeah Um, that's a great point and and recognizing and understanding that we're just sort of you know the scale is is tipped yeah Something I've noticed since getting sober is I was really used to living life on either a one or a 10. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where this bipolar diagnosis kind of came into play. Mm -hmm. Like I was either the most depressed I'd ever been and ready to commit suicide Mm -hmm. or on top of the mountain, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. ready to start a business, had the next best idea, loving life seeing people constantly or isolating my house and not leaving. Mm-hmm. And so, number one, a pretty draining way to live life. Yeah. Um, and just not sustainable. Um, but what I've noticed since eliminating substance from my life is that I don't really have ones or tens anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, my most days are a lot closer to a five. Yeah. And while you may argue that on one hand, that's limited my capacity to feel some of what I felt before. I would much rather have a more sustainable baseline. For sure. It's less exhausting. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. Draining. And both what's on both ends of those, that spectrum is craving is, is seeking questing for something. So like when I am dead, yeah, I'll feel better. Yeah, things will be better. Yeah, I'll be free of this suffering when I make that money, get that job, yep. buy that thing. Yep. My suffering will end, and and they're both illusions. That's not true. And and so recognizing that and understanding that there's always going to be the ebb and flow. Some sometimes life is fantastic and super enjoyable and wonderful sometimes it fucking sucks yeah and and being able to kind of roll in and roll out along with that knowing that it's all 
the only constant is change. Yeah. And and being able to be really fully present with whatever it is that's that's there for you without trying to, to change it. Um, resistance resistance yields suffering. And so whenever we're resisting experiencing something or chasing something, we're in some form of suffering when we can just let it be. Yeah. And it sounds like that's what you learned without substances to just live yeah. and let it be. Yeah. And I was just talking to a friend about this the other night um, mm-hmm. when it comes to Buddhist teachings, when when they describe what leads to suffering in life. Mm-hmm. The three things that they often point out are desire, mm-hmm. greed, and ignorance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ignorance was one I had a hard time wrapping my head around in terms of how that could lead to suffering. I have a couple theories, mm-hmm. but desire for me was the big one. Yeah. We're always constantly wanting that next thing or that different thing. Absolutely. Or this other person or this bigger house or this better job. And mm-hmm. for me, that desire for a long time was the desire to feel different. Yeah. Anything that's going to help me feel what I'm not feeling right now. Right. Let's do it. And I that's... don't care what it is. I don't care what the consequences are. Mm-hmm. And something I've tried really hard to avoid in my sobriety is um, preaching the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's yeah. like more attraction rather than promotion. Mm-hmm. I'd rather people see yeah. The differences in how I'm living now compared to how I was living then. Sure. But something I'm a really big proponent of is if depression is a big part of your story, mm-hmm. if not sobriety, at least abstinence is something that is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it just muddies the water so much. And yeah. I didn't even realize it. But when I first told my psychiatrist that I was in treatment and getting sober, she was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. You just made my job so much easier. Yeah. You, you can't address any of the other underlying stuff until the person is clean. I mean, and I didn't realize that. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought she was just getting on my case about smoking pot. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to do what I want. You can't yeah. control me. Mm-hmm. And I realized all I was doing was a disservice to myself and mm-hmm. something we haven't really touched on, but medication and how the, how you can essentially render that ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you have a strong stance one way or the other on medication? I don't. I mean, it's not something that I necessarily advocate for, but I do recognize that sometimes it's it's a helpful tool yeah. for people. And if it helps them, you know, get over a hump, obviously, I, I, I definitely don't think anyone should be on an antidepressant for their entire life right? or to be on an antidepressant and not going to therapy or yeah. doing the work. Um, there has to be that component for actual healing. Yeah. Um, but I recognize that it, it can certainly be beneficial for some folks when they're just so stuck in the pit that they can't even, they can't even climb their way out to, to do the work. Yeah. Um, and I've seen it help folks in that way. Um, I want to speak to what you said, the question about ignorance. Yeah. Because to me, The definition of ignorance, you know, it's not just about um, not knowing what's going on in the world or, you know, not being well-educated or well-read. I I think ignorance speaks to just not knowing. Mm. And so we are ignorant when those things are in in the shadow, 
you know, ignorant okay. of of the influences that are affecting our lives. And when we can bring those things into awareness, when we can understand that they're there, we can heal them. Or we can, you know, so the suffering is in, you know, having these repeating patterns, (laughs) but not even being aware of, A, that you even, it even is a pattern or why that pattern is there. So that's kind of what came to my mind when you said that. Yeah, that's a great point. And another thing that came to mind for me, uh, I think most of my suffering comes from, at least I perceive it to come from other people mm-hmm. and that's often just a byproduct of ignorance mm-hmm. if if what this person is doing is getting on my nerves and i have the story attached to that that they're behaving in this way because they're an asshole yeah. that's ignorance yeah they're behaving this way because they're dealing with their own struggles mm-hmm. and this is how they're processing it yeah exactly and if, and if i could approach that situation with compassion rather than judgment yeah i wouldn't be suffering as hard yeah, absolutely. And and I think that is such a key point. And again, this goes back to what kids need to learn in school. Yep. <laughs> when you have a problem with someone else, instead of going, you know, he's making me feel this way or he's doing this or that and pointing the finger and laying the blame, going inward. I feel this way about I this. I feel this way. What is getting activated? Yep. What is getting triggered in me? What does this remind me of? Yeah. You know, Uh, just be curious just be curious with yourself and i always encourage people to do that without judgment don't judge yourself yeah for you know feeling like the guy is an asshole just notice what you're feeling because that's how you can move away from it for you you can't change that guy right or do his work for him or make him behave any differently but you can understand what's coming up for you in that dynamic yeah absolutely and uh you know, there are some people out there, maybe they are just assholes, but yeah. that is the vast minority. <laughs> Most people are just experiencing life and struggling in the same way you are. That's and absolutely there are probably things that I do that really upset and piss people off mm-hmm. that I have blind spots to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the real power is, and where we can really help each other, is being able to see and then communicate other people's blind spots. That's mm-hmm. been one of the biggest benefits of therapy for me mm-hmm. is I have this relationship with my therapist now. I've been with been with them for it's about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And they can stop me in my tracks now and go, hey, it looks like mm-hmm. you're acting out on this. And I'm like, oh, shit, you're right. Yep. And if we can do that with our friends, with our family, mm-hmm. in a way that's non-threatening and accessible to them, yeah. that's huge. It is huge. And that's like, that's the tricky, sticky part, right? Because people, (laughs) they react, they don't respond to maybe some of that feedback and and get defensive or, you know, feel hurt or or don't understand. I mean, obviously, there has to be a foundational trust and love and understanding um, and good communication between people that are offering that kind of feedback to one another. Yeah. Or else the way it gets received can be deeply misunderstood um we have to be willing to to re, you know offer it and able yeah to take it and look in the mirror and that's very hard for a lot of people yeah and a, a way that i've found it found that it works the best in practice in my own life um 
and I'm thinking about someone in particular here who's probably mm-hmm. going to listen to this. Mm-hmm. What's up, mom? Mm-hmm. Um, framing helps so much mm-hmm. where if I can sit down with her um, or anybody really and say, hey, I've noticed that this is coming up for you. Mm-hmm. And when it does, it makes me feel this way. And I'm wondering if there's not another way that we could approach it. Yeah. Making it about you noticing their yeah. experience validating it for them not making it about like when you do this it drives me up a fucking mm-hmm. wall because mm-hmm. even if that if that's what i want to say that's going to be met with defensiveness right. every time they're not going to hear you if i can say hey i noticed that this is going on and i wonder if it bothers you when it's happening mm-hmm. why don't we talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. yeah that's beautiful I'm just trying to put those drop those walls a little bit mm-hmm. absolutely and and i will say here too that you know i think that the ability to to self-reflect and develop self-awareness is, you know, there's it's like an aptitude. It varies from person to person. We don't all have the same capacity, sure. this is my opinion. Um, so some people can can hear that and and welcome it and. Some people can communicate that and express it, and then others just struggle yeah. more in that that area. But but I will say that you know, regardless of the the language used or how we're encouraging people, having compassion, assuming best intent, yep. <laughs> um, to just kind of have that with you with all interactions um, is so, so so helpful absolutely people can feel it they can feel it when um when you mean well yeah and when you're coming from a caring place yep and compassion has been something that's pretty challenging for me across the board Mm -hmm. i don't feel it towards myself very often Mm -hmm. so i'm not likely to approach most other situations with compassion Mm -hmm. but something that's helped is to what you just said is assuming that in all instances, most people are trying their best. Yes. Even if it's that, if it's not up to whatever standard I hold in my head, if it doesn't meet whatever unspoken expectations I have, mm-hmm. if I can accept the fact that they are doing the best they can with the capacity they have, absolutely, I can really reduce my suffering and learn how to act within those bounds. Yes, and that right there is like a huge thing for folks who you know, had parents that didn't show up maybe in the best way possible, you know, that learning and knowing like, well, when you can really come to that place of they did the best they could with what they had available to them emotionally or whatever. um, It's so incredibly healing to not hold on to blame and and resentment forever. Yeah. Because that resentment, uh, nothing, nothing good can come from that. No. Um, and that's something I felt for a long time towards a lot of people in my life. And um, just kind of starting to peel the onion back on that. I can always almost point that within to an expectation that I had. Yeah. And that's such a dangerous thing. Yeah. Um, having these expectations of ourselves, of other people, mm-hmm. um, and being hurt or violated when they're not met. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that that's another like core cause of suffering. Absolutely. Just expectation in I general. Agree. 
Totally. Yes, that is definitely something I talk about with folks a lot. Yeah. Uh, shift your, are your expectations realistic Yeah. for this person, this situation, whatever? How can you adjust your expectations? Because again, you can't change the other person necessarily. Yeah. Um, but yeah. For me, what's helped is just trying to never be married to an outcome. Mm-hmm. Being open to experiencing whatever it is that's going to come from a situation. Mm-hmm. If I am hell-bent on getting my way out of something, I'm yes. probably going to be disappointed. Absolutely. <laughs> and that speaks to trust in general and yeah. having faith in, you know, the process of life. Like, I love the the saying or whatever that, you know, what is meant for you won't be lost to you. You'll, you know, anything that is actually truly meant for you will show up in your life. Yeah. And um I feel like this speaks somewhat to just faith in general and having just how um nourishing and and helpful it is to cultivate some sort of faith. Sure. <laughs> some sort of trust in 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 <clears throat> something in that life unfolds as it should. Yeah. So that can come in the form of religion. And, and spirituality, and that can look many different ways. But I think when we are able to understand that we, as as individual humans, cannot manipulate and control things to our will all the time, but we have to just trust that we are part of a broader system, just like the leaf on the tree is, yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, part of a, a larger whole and just allow it to unfold the way it will it it's just there's like a peace and a calm in in that that is tremendously helpful and it's very difficult for some people sure. to get to that place control is yeah something people really like to have but i'm definitely a control freak <laughs> and it has definitely improved in my life but it's taken a lot of work mm-hmm. um but faith is something that i thought didn't have a place in my life for the longest time Mm -hmm. because I've identified as atheist or agnostic since I was probably 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So I just assumed that faith in anything was weakness Yeah. um, because I was very staunch in some of the beliefs that I had. Mm -hmm. But ironically enough, it took the sudden passing of my dad for me to explore faith and spirituality Mm -hmm. outside Mm -hmm. of religion Mm -hmm. because I realized at that point that if I don't start to have faith in something... I'm never going to be connected to my dad again. Mm-hmm. And that was just like unfathomable. Yeah. Like I couldn't live with that as an option. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started meditating every day. Mm-hmm. That's when I started just becoming open to looking through signs in nature. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Just, it's been a really beautiful journey, honestly. Yeah. I think that's a really important personally piece to mental health is that connection to something outside beyond yourself whatever that is yeah if it is going out in nature if it's looking at the stars if it's um if it's prayer of some sort or if it does come in the form of religion as long as you're connecting religion is meaningless yeah when you're just following rules and you don't even understand why those rules exist or what you're doing what's 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 that that's not spirit no it's not and then that's not faith that's just I don't know, blind following, um, but anything that connects, you know, and we're all different and the ways that we connect are different, but, um, but finding that I think is 
to me, a, a key component. Absolutely. So I want to pull on something that you mentioned earlier um, in terms of the types of clients that you like working with. Yeah. The creative, the misfit, uh, I forget how else you described artists, it. The artists, weirdos, weirdos, yeah. <laughs> what has been your experience in working with that archetype, if you will? Mm-hmm. And how do you find that it relates to that part that you have within you because I know know that you create your own art as well yes yes um and I will say not all my clients kind of fit (laughs) in that label but but that's like many of them and who are drawn to me and who I am drawn to I think you know I identify as as that in many ways and so um there's just that resonance yeah and um you know I feel like we're just part of the same community there's that that sort of tribal familial (laughs) bonding kind of thing that happens when you have certain similarities with with folks definitely and and i guess was there a specific question in that um not really no just because that's been really a primary focus of like the work i've been trying to do Mm -hmm. i really find myself drawn to that type of person as well yeah and I've I found it helps me get in touch with that part of myself a lot more Mm -hmm. when I can see someone in the workshop if you will and see how they create why they create what goes into it Mm -hmm. how it relates to their emotional experience Mm -hmm. it gives me a lot of aha moments in my own life where Mm -hmm. I can go oh I've never really thought of it that way I can explore that avenue Mm -hmm. you know yeah and I think um because I do love to create, I can kind of identify with that process and the struggles of the process and the the blessings of that process. But also, you know, many artists or, you know, I'm saying misfits or whatever, they're, they're have a sense of not belonging, yeah. of, of being cast out or different or weird in some way. And um, and oftentimes the, the clients that I work with are also highly empathetic, highly sensitive people. And so that has caused great struggle for them. And so because I understand it on a, on a personal and in a deeper level too, it's obviously it makes me better at what I do. Definitely. I can, I can see things from their perspective and I can guide them in ways that make sense to them. And, um, yeah, it sort of flows naturally more naturally definitely yeah that makes a lot of sense um maybe i'm assuming and and thinking this but i'd imagine that a lot of your clients end up falling within like a certain age bracket yeah you know they have been all over the place um but lately um the majority are in their 20s i would say yeah with some in their 30s some in their 40s um, I have had older clients, but at this time, they're, oh, they're kind of within that range with the bulk being young adults. Okay. So I think the last question that I have, and then I'm, I want to open it up to you if there's anything that we didn't touch on that you, you really wanted to speak to. Mm-hmm. Um, I fall within that bracket. I'm going to be 30 next month. Mm-hmm. Um, and something I hear quite often about my generation is, in particular is that we're soft. We're soft. We are the depression and anxiety generation. Mm -hmm. And there's some truth to that. I mean, just in terms of 
the sheer number of people Mm -hmm. that identify as either having depression or anxiety. I think it's a Mm -hmm. lot greater within my generation, but the awareness of it is a lot greater than it's ever been. Yep. And the freedom for people to identify in that way and explore that part of themselves is a lot higher. Yep. So I'm just curious what you would say to someone who has that belief that my generation is kind of soft and bred to be depressed. Yeah, I would argue and say bullshit (laughs) because it's the things that you just said. And um, rather than taking your emotions and suppressing them and pretending they don't exist or they don't matter, you're unpacking them and looking at them and and developing emotional intelligence. I would say they're not soft. They're more emotionally intelligent Mm. than prior generations because they've had permission to explore these things. And it gives me great hope. Like I see, I work with some of my younger clients and I'm like, hallelujah. (laughs) Like maybe there is a shift, a societal shift um, happening here uh, because folks are better able to self-assess to look at to own their shit to to look at their emotional experiences to want to heal and get better uh, to communicate better and i'm so encouraged by um the broadening open-mindedness yeah you know we um we are becoming more accepting yeah of people who are different in all kinds of ways you know like um sexual orientation gender orientation relationship orientation so many of my clients are polyamorous Uh and and not falling in the mold of monogamy and just you know there are lots of different ways to be in this life and i feel like your generation does a much better job of understanding that than my generation or prior generations um and appreciating it. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> I love the diversity and I want more of it. <laughs> I, I equate it to that that pivotal point during the whole pandemic when the cases were just through the roof mm-hmm. and we were doing more testing. Therefore, there are more known right. cases. Exactly. Um, exactly. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it encourages me. I mean, I'm like, I, I joke that your generation just loves therapy. Yeah. I love it. And, um, Great. Bring it on. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. yeah. Not just because it's good for business, but because it's good for us all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I lied. I actually have another question. It's something we mm-hmm. talked about uh, before upstairs, before we started recording, was this shift, um, obviously out of necessity, to remote therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know just in some of the folks that I've talked to is they plan on going fully remote with yeah. their therapy. Yeah, I'm curious to hear about your experience doing that in person versus remote to some of the things that we, we spoke to earlier. Yeah, for sure. I mean, while I can appreciate some of the conveniences of, of working remotely, um, I way more <laughs> appreciate meeting with people in person. There is an, uh, an, an energy and attunement a connection that you yeah. can make with another human when you're in the same room with them 
that you cannot make through a screen, in my opinion. And while great work can still be done, I think particularly because of the way that I work, because I am so highly intuitive, because we do do more experiential stuff in session, maybe beyond just talking all the time. Um, it, it, it serves my, my self and my practice better. Absolutely. To to be face to face. Um, yeah. And I mentioned to you before too, just how with the pandemic, well, I I mentioned the client whose face I hadn't seen because she was masked for months and then finally being able to see her face. It's like a whole other level of connection. Um, so yeah, I'll be grateful when, you know, and I, you know, past this, pandemic i'll still offer people the option because some of my clients do prefer to meet online it is they don't have to deal with traffic or you know making the extra time in their schedule to to come to the appointment and if that works for them that's lovely but um but i'll be excited to have the majority back in person yeah yeah being on the receiving end of it um I've definitely noticed a difference in how I process things over a screen versus in person. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, I've been with my current therapist for almost three years. And when we first went to the online format, I almost felt like we were starting over. Yeah. I had to like relearn how to communicate with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something I've expressed to friends who have um, been interested in starting, starting therapy during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I was like, don't base it off of your experience of what you have over zoom or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, because it is very different being in person. Yeah. And I I think it's important to have that option moving forward. Yep. I agree. And as a therapist, I feel like so much of the information that I'm taking in is beyond, oops, I'm sorry, (laughs) is beyond the, the frame of, of the camera and the screen like i i can i can read the way they move i can read you know what they're wearing i like there's all these little nuances and bits of information that seem irrelevant but are part of the whole picture that i'm taking in and offering my presence yeah to yeah and you spoke to like being more experiential in treatment it makes me think of a story that my therapist shared with me Um, She had a client who was almost, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Like non-communicative. They were, um, oh shit, what's the word? I can't think of it. Like resistant? Like not wanting to talk? No, not not wanting to talk, but they almost just kind of weren't. Oh, disassociated. Yeah, disassociated. The word will come to me. Okay. and she went through several sessions with this person like this, really just trying to pull anything out. And they mm-hmm. were just associated to the point of not communicating. Yeah. And she, I guess she read somewhere and tried this, that during one of their sessions, she just started tossing a ball back and forth with him. Ah. And <laughs> Brilliant. Just that little thing alone. Mm-hmm brought him into the present moment and Mm -hmm. it was like night and day like the switch flipped Mm -hmm. he started communicating they were able to process things yep so you never know what's going to work and unfortunately you're not afforded all of those opportunities over a computer screen no absolutely not yeah i know a lot of therapists who will you know go outside go for a walk move around 
um, yeah, you can't do that when <laughs> you're on a screen. Yeah. Cool. Well, is there anything that we didn't touch on that mm-hmm. you'd like to kind of plug or talk about before we wrap? Yeah, there's nothing really that I need to plug, but I will say that, um, you know, I think I think the reason I'm good at what I do um, and I'm good for the people, you know, my people is I really genuinely and sincerely care. (laughs) And I'm sure that's true of most therapists, but um, the feedback that I get from my clients is that they really appreciate my authenticity. And, um, and I know, like, I love them. And and that might sound crazy. (laughs) And some therapists would be, you know, scowling at at that. (laughs) But when I say love, I mean, it's, it's just that open heartedness and, um, and compassion that we're talking about. And I think all people just want to be seen and unconditionally accepted. Absolutely. And I offer that in session. And I think that in itself is inherently healing when someone can feel the energy of that and know that it's not bullshit. Um, half my work is done. Absolutely. For me right there. Yeah. Well, that definitely comes through. Like I can, I can see the passion that you have for it. Mm-hmm. And it's really great to know that you're out there and there are people like you out there who really just truly care and want to be able to Absolutely. help and make a difference. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's been really nice talking to you. I feel like I've learned a lot and you've given me a lot to kind of process and think about when it comes to my own, um, my own kind of therapeutic path forward. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, So, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on again. This was Adina Arden Cooper. You could check her out at firebirdcreative.me. And uh, hopefully we get to speak again soon. Yes, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Adina. Yep. All right.